0: Oh hello everyone. That's welcome back to the New Books Network's Disability Study Channel. Um, I'm Shu you know, the host of this channel. Um, today I'm feel very delighted and very very honored to invite Dr. Susan Birch um in com, uh, to, sorry, Susan Birch to our um podcast to talk about her newest book committed. So, uh, sorry, Professor Birch, could you just briefly introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Thank you, Shuan. Hello, I'm Susan Birch. I'm a disabled scholar activist who teaches and lives in Vermont in the ancestral and unceded lands of the Benaki Nation. As a grateful guest on these lands, I want to start by expressing my respect for their elders and ancestors past present and future. I'm so delighted to join you today.
0: Thank you so much, Professor. So my next question will be, I'm wondering um, the reason why you, I mean, take interest in the disability study, this field.
1: Thank you. Disability studies has intersected with my personal and professional life for a very long time. I thank the colleagues and the friends and the family members who continued to teach me that disability is fundamental to our understanding of being in the world. And in the early to mid 1990s, I became interested in and was invited to attend Society for Disability Studies conferences, where I met more people who became my people, where I found home, even though I hadn't realized it at the outset. Working at Gallaudet University for many years also fortified my interest and commitments to deaf cultural worlds and the bridges between deaf cultural worlds and broader disability worlds, which is to say both community and study of community have nourished
0: my life. Okay, thank you, Professor, thank you so much. So now let's turn to your book, Committed. So my first question about the book is that um, I want to invite you to talk about early life of those indigenous people um, until being institutionalized in your, I mean, discussing your book.
1: I'm so glad that you started by asking about people's lives before institutionalization, because frequently scholarship and broad representations in the public about Canton Asylum in South Dakota, a federal psychiatric facility that detained American Indians between 1902 and 1934, frequently only talk about the institution or lives of people when they were inside. And it's important as we think about this as a lived experience to recognize that that means we start beforehand. So to answer your question, my understanding of many of the people who were detained at Canton were leading lives like many other people in uh, Native communities on Turtle Island before 1902, which is to say some people were raising families. Some people were uh, detained and attending Native American boarding schools. Some people were children at the time, very, very young. Others were medicine and were providing healing and blessings to their community members. Others were actively resisting settler colonial attacks on their sovereignty. The whole range of imaginable everyday life with struggle, with love, with everything in between was part of their lives before they were taken forcibly to Canton Asylum.
0: Um. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much again. So, after about those people's early life, my next question will be like I want. I'm wondering how the institutionalization of those indigenous women erased the uh, indigenous culture and the family and the replaced them with a wide settler set models.
1: Yes. So Canton Asylum detained both men and women, but one of the important things to follow in this story is the gender targeting. Among the logics that superintendents of reservations used and administrators in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, BIA, and the asylum argued that Indigenous women who did not conform to white settler gender expectations were pathologized, and that was used to justify their incarceration at Canton Asylum, which is to say it was an active effort to contain and erase Native families, Native nations, and the presence of Native culture and memory. So by taking women who often were young in their 20s and 30s, some were teenagers, the effort was uh, to restrict their capacity to bear children, to raise their families, and in so doing, to dismantle fundamental features of native life.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Professor. Again, so after that, my third question about your book is that um, I'm wondering uh, um, those. Indigenous families, their efforts to ros- rescue those people from the Canton's asylum, which is very interesting. Which I'm going to say, which is very interested me when I read your book.
1: Yes. One of the things that was particularly haunting for me while looking at archival materials was how many family members on the outside were petitioning for the release of their loved ones who were locked away. It's not surprising, but the efforts that these family members made, and there were many efforts and many family members trying to get their relatives out, was the detail of how harmful the institutionalization of their kin was for their kin and for them. In the process of detailing that, they were also teaching all of us have a fundamentally different way of understanding institutionalization. From a Western biomedical lens and a settler colonial and ableist framework, administrators, medical professionals and staff argued that these people were defective and needed to be contained for their own good and for the good of other people. The family members argued that theft of their kin disrupted well-being and balance and sustainability for the whole family for the broader community and argued that well-being which is closer to broad indigenous um, features of medical systems within the many different native nations that that was actually being exacerbated and harmed by institutionalization. So the opposite outcomes, they argued. And some family members even tried to come to Canton to visit their kin. That was incredibly difficult between the significant distance they would have to travel, as well as language barriers to overcome for some of them. Many of these families, especially older generations, didn't speak English, So even being able to send letters to their kin required significant effort on their part, and most of them were rebuffed by the administrators and by BIA superintendents at the reservations. It's important to note that they didn't give up, that many of these family members continued to petition and continued to remember their kin as a way of countering the erasure and harm of institutionalization.
0: Okay. Oh, thank you so much. Sorry. Thank you so much again for your answer, which was interesting. So, after about, like, I want to say the continuing connection between those indigenous family and those women um, in the Canton asylum. So, my next question is about, I mean, those indigenous people's everyday life in the asylum.
1: It's difficult to convey the everyday harm. Mm and crushing oppression of life in the locked wards at Canton Asylum. It was a place where disease outbreaks were incredibly common. More than half of the people who were forcibly committed to Canton Asylum did not survive that experience. So death was an everyday experience or presence for people. I can imagine few other examples of more anti-Indigenous intervention than stealing people from their people, literally from their homelands where their ancestors' bones are buried, and locking them in wards with bars on windows and locks on doors, surrounded by people who did not speak their language, being forced to eat um, subpar food. Often people were malnourished, some were starved, and to be treated with incredible, brutal um, force by staff members. So everyday life within Canton included coerced labor, people who were institutionalized, who were physically able to do labor on behalf of the institution, had to farm, had to clean the dorms, had to take care of other ill and elderly people in the locked wards, some members were forced to clean and take care of the house and family members of the superintendent, even as they were denied the opportunity to be home with their children and parents and home to take care of them there. So it was a place of um, of incredible shadow and harm that and endless time, one of the striking things about institutionalization of this sort, and it's not unique to Canton, is that there was no end to the sentencing of institutionalization. No one knew whether they could get out or when they would get out. And that also exacerbated the harm of endlessly waiting and trying to return to their people.
0: Okay, thank you so much about your introduction discussion of those indigenous women's experience in the Cantonese asylum. So my subsequent question will be, um, will be that I'm wondering about the consistent. I I would say beyond the, the their life in you know, the. Asylum. So I w- I'm wondering about the consistent influence of being institutionalized in the asylum on those indigenous people and their family after the closure of this institution in 1933.
1: Right. So when Canton was forcibly closed in 1933, newspapers proclaimed that this Uh, That the Native people were set free because they were no longer at Canton, which obscures the larger truth, which is that most of the people who were detained at Canton were transferred to yet another federal psychiatric institution, St. Elizabeth's in Washington, D.C. For those 71 people, the story of existing in locked wards continued and exacerbated by being even further from their homes even further from their family members. It's important to note that while some family members had visited their kin in South Dakota, had sent letters to relatives on the inside in South Dakota, much fewer correspondence occurred, or at least appears in the record after 1933, that some family members didn't even know that their kin were taken and moved elsewhere. And as time passed, relational ties were frayed, were corroded, and that made it even more difficult for family members to maintain good relations with their kin. Some of the people who had been detained at Canton were discharged, but they returned to reservations that were significantly different from the ones they had left often decades earlier. Sometimes spouses had remarried and started other families. Often, many of their kin, whom they had grown up with, had been living around and with for all of their lives, had walked on, and so were no longer physically present. The kinds of networks and connections that are nourished in day-to-day interaction over years and years were significantly undermined. Some were embraced by their families again, and there was some restoration, others ended up on the margins of the worlds that had been home for them previously. So the ripple effect of institutionalization harmed all of the people who were detained on the inside and also harmed and disrupted the lives of their kin on the outside. And we see the, the imprint of that to present day.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Professor. So my last, oh, sorry, not my last question. My following question will be, I mean, be, besides the inference, I'm also wondering implication of the experience or memory. So my question is that I'm wondering, I mean, the importance and the implication of remembering the traumatic story for both those people, I mean, indigenous people's descendants and the general public.
1: Yes, thank you for that question. When I think about remembering the past, I think of it as repopulating it, that part of the ongoing damage of settler colonialism is erasure and of replacement. And so the erasure literally of Indigenous people's presence, lifeways, past and futures is part of the project and replacing it with a settler presence, future and understanding and so remembering is incredibly important for countering that harmful impact of settler colonialism, and it is also a tool for helping dismantle settler colonialism. If I can give a short story of one of the families who collaborated with me, they were from Prairie Band Potawatomi in what is also known as Kansas today. Ozashkwa was medicine. She was a healer, and she was stolen away to Canton in the early 1900s. Before she was taken, her family took photographs of their family, which displayed her incredibly beautiful and artistic skills in beadwork and sewing. They wore the clothing that she made for them in this photo as a demonstration of their indigeneity and their kinship connections and their love for one another. After Ozashkwa was taken away, the family members kept these photos on their walls, including a portrait of Ozashkwa. And the next generations of the family who grew up in her house with her photo on the wall, but her physical presence erased while she was detained at Canton. She was among some of, one of the people who is removed to St. Elizabeth's when Canton closed. So for all of those decades, her children honored her by wearing her clothing, by sharing some of her stories, and having her picture on the wall looking down on the next generations of her family. Her daughters also made with her on the inside, while they were on the outside, quilt pieces. And they sewed their names into these quilt pieces, literally as a way of stitching each other together and Remembering one another, creating an archive, creating medicine, if you will. Ozashqua died on the inside of St. Elizabeth's in the 1940s, and her family had her returned home. They were a family that regularly wrote, even when she was at St. Elizabeth's, demanding her return, demanding respect for their mother, refusing to allow staff members to cut their mother's hair, and refusing to forget her, to allow her to be erased. Generations later, her great-great-grandson, Jack Jensen, inherited the quilt pieces as well as the photographs of his great-great-grandmother. He had carried with him so many questions. What happened with her? What had she done to deserve to be taken away was how he had thought about her story. But through our collaborations and his engagement with the archival sources that we had found, he came to recognize that She was taken because she was Potawatomi. She was taken because she was medicine, that her indigeneity was pathologized and used as justification, that she had done nothing wrong. And that in the name of care and maintenance, she had been detained in exile from her family for decades. That was a really important revelation for Jack Jensen. And he assembled the quilt and has brought it back into the family and introduced it as a way of actively continuing to remember Ozashkwa and to build good relations with her. It's an act of healing, which remembering also can do. It doesn't only do that, but it's one of the possibilities. And it's one of the ways that, pardon me, Jack Jensen and many others continue to practice survivance which is a way of thinking about struggle and adaptation and innovation and continuance. I'm always reminded of the power of that kind of memory for continuing into the future ahead of us.
0: Okay, Professor, thank you so much again for your answer. So I want to say here's my last question today. Um, I want to invite you to talk about the reason beyond this book, beyond the case study in the book. I want to invite you to talk about the reason why it still matters to think about institutionalization in terms of kinship rather than the medical model or medical framework.
1: It's such an insightful question. Thank you for offering that one. As somebody who's studied institutions and people who have been institutionalized, I'm regularly struck by the many different dimensions of harm that a weaponized Western biomedical model can create and institutionalization as one of the expressions of that. So if we focus just on institutions and on the process and practice of institutionalization, we're complicit in the actual erasure of the people who are most targeted by it and the people who are close in relationship to them. So I view um, the framing and the centering of kinship as part of the story of institutionalization Um, in alliance with the remembering that the relatives also practice, which is to say an effort to counter settler colonial uh, damage and the damage of institutionalization. The distance between, as just one example, thinking about people as patients, which also conforms to a Western biomedical model and assumes that people are submitting to care and treatment. If we challenge that, for example, and insist on calling people people, (laughs) we can further understand the many different ways that this experience um, has traveled across time and brings us back to our accountability to the communities who make our work possible, who've lived these experiences. So I see it as as a combination of uh, honoring, of the descendants as well as the ancestors, and also an extension of the brilliance that disability studies and disabled people continue to teach us, which is that ours is a story of people, of beings, and that that is going to be a deep well of nourishment for our continued learning.
0: Okay. Professor, thank you so much again for your answer. So I very appreciate you com- you coming to our, I mean, podcast today. Um, at the end, I want to talk to my audience. Okay. So as you, after, I mean, I think I think as a, as a, I say as a disability historian, I learned a lot after reading both reading Dr. Birch's book and listening to her talk today. And I want to recommend this fantastic, amazingly good book to anybody with a strong interest in the history of disability history of uh, mental health issues and disability, uh, in the history of um, Native American. So thank you so much. See you soon. Thank you.